Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hey friends, welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. And today we're going to be talking about a topic that we really haven't covered a whole lot on this show. And so that's why I'm really excited to bring you this episode talking with an ex- Mormon. Her name is Lucy Clark. We had a great conversation about how she grew up in the LDS church. And then when she got married and had kids, she sent her kids to a private Christian school. And the Christians at this school were critical thinkers. They were knowledgeable in theology and apologetics. And they prayed with Lucy. They invited her to Bible studies. And one of the highlights of this conversation for me was when Lucy highlighted the differences, well, I should say more the sameness between LDS beliefs and progressive Christian beliefs. This was actually really eye-opening to me because I haven't studied a whole lot about the Mormon faith. And so she was talking about specifically the doctrine of the cross, the doctrine of hell, and human sinfulness, and how there's really a lot of overlap between LDS beliefs and progressive Christian beliefs. So that was a real big highlight for me in this conversation. So if you have Mormon friends and neighbors, this is an episode for you to just get to know an ex-Mormon and really what helped lead her out of the Mormon Church and into the believing the authentic gospel. Now, I do want to let you guys know something really, really important right off the bat here. If you have been following the Unshaken Faith podcast, then you know that we've announced some new dates. But if not, we'll definitely go over and subscribe to the Unshaken Faith podcast. That's the weekly uh, just bite-sized podcast I do with my friend Natasha Crane, where we talk about cultural topics. We've talked a lot about a lot of things lately, the after-party curriculum. We've talked about the He Gets Us campaign. So we hit all the cultural things on that podcast, but we also have a conference that we've been to California. We've been to Arizona. We have done some really great uh, dates on this conference. It's Natasha Crane, myself, and our friend Frank Turek. And we talk about things like critical theory. We talk about social justice. We talk about secularism. We talk about 
about deconstruction and we talk about sexuality and how we can, as Christians, can engage with some of these conversations with culture. So we really want you guys to come out to the upcoming Unshaken Dates, which, by the way, we just announced are going to be in Detroit. Okay, so this is this is not a place that apologetics conferences usually go, and that's why we want to go there, because we want to equip you in the Detroit area uh, to be able to have these conversations with people in your life. So we're going to be at Metro City Church on March 9th. That's Metro City Church on March 9th. If you are anywhere in the Detroit area on March 9th, we want to see you at the Unshaken Conference. You can go to unshakenconference.com and you can get your tickets today, right now. Now, the other date that we have announced is the Pittsburgh area. So if you're anywhere in the Pittsburgh area, we want to see you come out to the Unshaken Conference, and that's going to be on May 18th at Christ church at Grove Farm. So again, anywhere near Pittsburgh, we want to see you come out on May 18th at Christ Church at Grove Farm. And again, for both of those dates, you can go to unshakenconference.com and you can buy your tickets. All right, I want to take you right into this conversation with Lucy Clark today. Well, Lucy, I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast. This has been a long time coming, and I just loved getting to hear you share your story. And I honestly, I've, I've studied a little bit. I've been in the kiddie pool of LDS. Just I, I've not done a deep dive into the teachings and into what um, the Mormons believe, but I learned so much from listening to your presentation at the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy. Mm-hmm. And I'm so excited to have you on today to share a bit of your story and hopefully help my audience to understand the LDS Church better as well. So welcome, and I would just love if you would start with your story. I just did. You, you grew up in the LDS Church, I I think, and then you came mm-hmm. out of it and became a, a Christian. Talk about what that story looked like and and how that happened in your life. In 2014, uh, as seventh generation members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, our family made a unexpected and somewhat unorthodox decision to enroll our kids in a small, uh, very classical and robustly Christian private school near our home in Southern California, and. Um, I was really excited for this opportunity for my kids, having um, education as my professional background. I had only heard wonderful things about this um, community of faith and learning, um, actually from a very trusted um, LDS friend of mine. And so when we were enrolled, I just jumped in right alongside them with both feet um, to experience along with them kind of to go back to school to enjoy some of the things that they were learning that I never um, had the opportunity to learn um, in the public school system, but also to protect and nurture their faith in the restored gospel framework of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I felt very aware of the differences, the nuances between um, the historical tradition of Christianity and what we believed in the LDS restored gospel. Um, So I wasn't worried about it. Um, Really, I was just excited. And um, it was the first time in my life ever to be surrounded by an entire community of vibrant, uh, mature in their faith Christians. And Um, and I was welcomed in to this community. Our family was just embraced and loved, um, as if we were 
part of uh, the community as a whole, um, even with the differences in our in our worldviews. Um, and three things really began to stick out to me, I think, um, right away uh, that I didn't expect um, to see so clearly um, that became very relevant in the path that I took toward um, being born again uh, as a as a follower of the Jesus that we meet in the Bible. And uh, those three things include the just beautiful, um, flourishing prayer life in the school that I was invited into and stepped into, uh, the very solid relationship um, that that the community, that individuals, friends, teachers, and people that I was growing close to in the community had with the Bible, their approach to handling scripture was really striking to me. And also, this was a community of First Peter 3.15 people who had a solid apologetic foundation. Um, they understood um, the evidence for their faith. They were always able to share a logical um, reason for their belief um, or a story that was a story etched in reality and not emotion. It was uh, really just a wonderful thing to start to discover these things. And, and I really see them more clearly now, um, almost a decade later. But those three things were um, really important in the experience that I had over the course of several years, um, as God began to shift my entire dictionary of belief, um, the prayer life, the relationship to scripture, and uh, the rational foundation of faith that I was surrounded by. Um, the prayer life, for example, um, there's a very specific culture of prayer in most faith traditions, right? And the environment of prayer in my life was um, not casual. Um, in the LDS worldview, you're going to hear prayer constructed with thee and thou and thy. And it's um, always begun by uh, invoking the name of uh, well, Heavenly Father, we always begin our prayers addressing Heavenly Father, never Jesus, really. And um, giving a list of things that we're thankful for and grateful for, um, asking uh, our Heavenly Father for blessing, blessing, and then closing that prayer in the name of Jesus. And so um, if you listen close to that, there are a couple things that are kind of missing um, from the prayer life of uh, a lot of, compared to a lot of Christians, mm. um, praise being one of them, mm. and also um, time really devoted in confession. It's not that we're discouraged from praise or confession. It's just kind of not, it's just not a big feature in the prayer life of an LDS person. We don't pray to Jesus. We don't really talk to Jesus. And, and the tone isn't as casual as um, you might see in um, a, a contemporary Christian prayer life. Um, and so that was really provocative to me. Uh, and, and, and it really did cause me some discomfort initially, but mm -hmm. I really wanted to jump into the prayer life of the school and be part of the moms in prayer ministry and parents in prayer, because 
I loved prayer. I loved praying. And I really saw it as an opportunity to share my faith with other people and just to allow them to hear um, the landscape of my thoughts um, to God out loud and to be invited um, into a place where we were fully immersed in um, the biblical worldview. I just, I wanted to be a part of that, but also to share the light that um, was, I felt was missing for Christians who had a um, historic, traditional biblical worldview. Let me ask you so, about that really quick, because that's really interesting mm-hmm. to me. I, I was just about to ask you, like, did you feel like you were reaching out to them? Meanwhile, yeah. they felt like they were reaching out to you. So you did feel that. Yeah, yeah. And um, and it's kind of strange. I really had a hard time at first. I mean, I, I wanted to open my mouth and speak. In, in LDS culture, you won't see popcorn prayer um, as a general pattern of what did you prayer. call it popcorn? popcorn prayer like when people are sitting um in a oh, group yeah christians will o- often um engage in a pattern of prayer where one person opens and then if there's a circle of people for example sitting around a table then as people feel led they will um, right. add to and build i don't into know if i've ever prayer. heard it called popcorn prayer <laughs> oh okay <laughs> that's great that's great So that's not something that's going to be comfortable or familiar to your average Latter-day Saint. And it wasn't comfortable for me. And honestly, I viewed that the discomfort that I had was a nudging from the Holy Spirit, because in the LDS um, framework of how the Holy Spirit works, the Holy Spirit is sometimes compared to a traffic light um, where the green light, the feelings and the promptings that you have emotionally and inside of your thoughts um, can be like a green light where the Holy Spirit is urging you to go forward with something or a yellow light, feelings and emotions of caution um, where the Holy Spirit is urging you to be warned, to stay aware of things that are happening around you and to just be alert to sin or evil or um, something that would lead you away from the Lord. And then red light might look like a full stupor of thought. So I would enter these prayer groups sometimes and my mouth would just become like a ton of bricks had landed on top of it. Mm. I wouldn't be able to formulate thoughts or ideas. And so I was really forced by the circumstance. Number one, I just felt compelled to be cautious and like on alert, like what is the Lord trying to tell me and warn me away from? Is it the style of prayer? Is he warning me to become, you know, to not to pray to Jesus specifically, not to become slack in the form of prayer as I know it to be right and best. Um, And also it forced me to just listen, to really just sit up and listen to what was being spoken. And I did. And I noticed just the beautiful language of scripture flowing out of prayer. And I was I was really struck by that because I had spent so much time in my own life being very devout in my faith and in my upbringing. I had committed so much time to memorizing scripture and the way that scripture just flowed automatically out of people's Mm. mouths. People who I know had not been Christian as long as I had, I'd been born into the LDS faith. And so I was really struck by the powerfulness of that. Speaking the word of God back to God was something I had only seen occasionally. And in this environment, it was just, it was the language of prayer, the scaffolding of prayer. And that was so compelling to me because if I was really honest with myself and I didn't want to be honest with myself, I really viewed the LDS church as the fullness of something that other people were missing out on all the keys that are available in the restored gospel that for Christians, those, some of those keys are missing. Mm -hmm. And so I was surprised 
so much by the prayer life in the school. Number one, because of its beauty, um, because of its humility in a conversational tone, and then just the remarkable generosity of God in response to the prayer in this setting. I I was. What did so that look struck. like? What did um, that look like? So. We, I was part, uh, right away, I became very involved in a couple of different opportunities to volunteer at the school. So for example, I sat um, on a committee of people that was helping to procure items for our school gala and auction each year. And the abundance of things that would come into our laps um, to help support um, financing the vision and the mission of the school through these uh, this gala event that we held every year. It was really remarkable because so often people from outside of our school community who did not have a relationship with the school, didn't know anything about the school, would pretty miraculously be connected to the school and they would open their hands with such generosity. Usually it happened in the 11th hour, Mm -hmm. but God never failed. He never failed and always answered the prayers in unexpected ways better better than we had prayed for. Now, I had seen miracles in my life. I had seen um, things that were remarkable and that had confirmed my faith that I had the access to the full measure of the Holy Spirit, that I was living under the true authority of God. And so I never would have questioned the kind of prayer life and prayer experiences that I experienced growing up. The grace of God is big everywhere. And um, I had a lot of spiritual experiences um, and heard stories of people having dreams and visions, supernatural encounters with spirits, and um, had a lot of experience that would confirm uh, my beliefs as they were handed to me. And, um, And so I didn't expect God to show up in such a radically generous and fingerprint-like match to the circumstances Mm. that we were in. Um, The frequency of it, the generosity of it, I mean, it was just, it was such a a really wonderful thing to be invited into early on into in in this experience of being part of the school community. Real quick, Um, before we continue with your story, I do want to define a term you've said a couple of times, just for anybody who's totally unfamiliar with LDS beliefs. You've mentioned restored gospel. Just tell us what that means um, in the context of LDS. Mm -hmm. One of the things I love that I get to do on this podcast is partner with great companies who not only make great products, but they're owned by Christians who have biblical values and who are all openly pro-life. And Carly Jean Los Angeles is no exception. I love this company. It's a Los Angeles-based clothing company run by Carly Brannon, who is a mom of four. I love that she gives to a local pro-life resource pregnancy center with some of the proceeds that they receive from their sales. And the clothes are just so cute. I love that I don't have to worry about what I'm going to wear every day. This was this was actually something that caused me a lot of anxiety in years past before I discovered Carly Jean Los Angeles. And that's that I didn't know how to put a wardrobe together. And I love that all of her pieces are sort of created to go together in these capsules. In fact, you can go on and take a look at CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com at the different capsules they have that have different kind of classic timeless pieces. I also love that 
all of the clothes are ethically sourced. And the uh, basics line is all made right here in the USA. And the ones that are not made in the USA, they have oversight on making sure that these are healthy work environments and it's all ethically sourced. And I just absolutely love that. So we're kind of coming to the end of winter. We're heading into spring. Maybe you're looking for a few new pieces. Maybe you're looking for an alternative to some of the stores that a lot of us have bought clothes from in the past who have now gone incredibly woke and stores that you don't even necessarily want to bring your children into anymore because of the posters and some of the products that they're selling on the shelves. Well, Carly Jean Los Angeles is a great solution for you because you know that when you buy the clothes, you're getting really cute clothes, but you're also making sure that your money is not going to some of these woke causes. So they have a lot of new things in for kind of coming into spring. Check it out. Go to CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com. You can use my code, Elisa, for 20% off your first order. That's CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com. Use my code, Alisa. Yeah. So um, white Christians use the term gospel to describe the core of Christian belief. Um, the LDS church has um, its own terminology. A lot of it overlaps with biblical Christianity, with different definitions. And so the restored gospel is the phrase that an LDS person would use to describe the core set of their doctrinal beliefs, um, namely that um, after the death of Jesus Christ, a great apostasy happened and the key elements of um, the gospel were lost and removed from the Bible, that a Reformation didn't go far enough, and that a restoration of authority, of priesthood authority, um, and ordinances that we see in the LDS temple um, and other um, LDS, um, um, like baptism that happens in a, in a church setting, the temples that, uh, temples that house um, other priesthood ordinances, that those things were given to Adam and Eve anciently back in the Garden of Eden, but that over time they had been lost and needed a full restoration. Mm-hmm. So the path of making and keeping covenants and having faith in the atonement of Jesus Christ would all fall under um, the phrase restored gospel. Okay, that's good. That's helpful. I do want to touch on one other thing too, because you've so beautifully described how the prayer life of these Christians impacted you. And you touched on how their handling of scripture was mm-hmm. a bit different for you. Could you expand mm-hmm. on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, I had learned several different strategies for studying scripture and journaling my scripture study throughout my life and felt very proficient at opening a book of scripture, engaging with it and drawing instruction um, and meaningful guidance for myself from the Lord. Um, But I'd never uh, considered that I might be mishandling scripture. I'd never even heard the words apologetics or hermeneutics mm-hmm. um, before we came into this uh, community of, of learning. And so what I slowly began to put together was that people around me, um, by watching what my kids were learning in their Bible classes and listening to daily devotions and just attending events where scripture was handled, talking to friends about various aspects of their life, I could see that scripture flowed into 
everything. And the way that it flowed into everything was a very simple hermeneutic that you could um, boil down into, in general, um, into these three questions um, that my friends brought to scripture as they read and studied. And that those questions are, what does this passage or text um, say about God? What does this passage or text say about humanity and specifically my own humanity that's uh, being held up here in uh, the narrative? Um, and what is the right response that I see God pointing me toward? Not the right response that Lucy is is feeling nudged toward or thinking should be the right response, but that God is um, directing the reader toward. And as simple as that sounds and as obvious as that sounds now, I had not been exposed to that kind of handling of scripture. I hadn't ever considered also, also the possibility that I might have been um, proof texting scripture or cherry picking scripture, just looking for verses and texts to affirm and confirm uh, my own views. I didn't think critically about that kind of handling of scripture. And in this environment where my kids were learning um, from the ground up, um, learning how to think well with uh, logic and um, skills for just discerning, you know, thinking errors yeah. of their own or the thinking errors that they're presented with or confronted with. I was starting to pick up on all of that stuff because we would talk um, about their day and we would talk about the content of their day. And um, it was shaping and informing me That's so at cool. the same time. Mm -hmm. You made a really interesting point a second ago that I actually really relate with. Uh, of course, I didn't grow up in the LDS church. I grew up in, in the Christian church and was a Christian my whole life. But mm -hmm. I relate with what you're saying in a lot of ways about the handling of Scripture because mm -hmm. now I don't think anybody in my life said, you know, you need to interpret scripture according to your own prompts or, or something like that. But I did do that. Mm -hmm. I've even shared on the podcast before about how when I was growing up, again, I, I also had never heard the word hermeneutics. Mm -hmm. And so I thought when I would read the Old Testament, it would be some battle, David going into battle or something. And, and it was just totally irrelevant to me what was happening in history or maybe mm -hmm. what that said about God. I just didn't know to look for that when I was reading Scripture. So I would just immediately kind of think, well, how can I apply this? And really following, you know, some kind of prompt in my own heart to say, oh, well, I have this spiritual battle going on and look what, look what David did and, you know, maybe God can do that in my life. And it yeah. was just completely disconnected from the objective meaning of the text. And so mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm very interested to ask you, you know, you talked a lot about prompts, how, um, you know, you might be in a meeting, you were taught to say, you know, I have, I have this prompt. And what would happen with two Mormons who might have different prompts? Like, how would they settle that? How would they work that out if they were feeling something different in their, in their hearts? Okay, so if like the Holy Spirit prompted them in different yeah. directions, if in one thought to the Holy Spirit was prompting this way that this is good, yeah. and the other person yeah. said, "No, I think the prompt I'm being prompted by the Holy Spirit that this is evil," like how would they um, solve that? So, typically, uh, in in my life experience, I think a lot of LDS people will relate to this. Um, what ends up happening is one view is um, either quieted down or both views are put out there as equally valid. Um, and in the end, I think that something I became very 
I'm very good at, um, at in the course of doing this over and over again, when I was confronted with thing, with ideas that didn't um, gel with my view of the restored gospel framework, um, would to be, if, if, if there was something troubling me about what another person said, I would push that aside um, mm-hmm. and, and dismiss it. And, and a lot of times I would dismiss my own concerns. Mm-hmm. Like if a person brought up a view that actually triggered concern in my mind that they could be right and that would um, disrupt um, my view of things and disrupt the the status quo of having mm-hmm. a handle on the truth and, and disrupt my certainty about the worldview yeah. that I had. Um, I would just push, push those things down. And I think that yeah. um, the squashing of critical thinking is really mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, it's an unspoken way of life. I think in, uh, in the culture that I grew up in um, yeah. The starvation of the starvation of critical thinking, I think, in any context, is such a tragedy. And so, it was, mm-hmm. it was a really important part of my kids' education that woke something up in me um, that I'd always known was important and valuable. But seeing them um, handle uh, conflict and 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 wrestle with ideas and the merit of of ideas um, to try to discern their objective truth, that, that was always something I was interested in and, and was a total, like, uh, I'd love to nerd out on conversations where ideas are just hashed out. So, um, I really gravitated towards the way they were learning to evaluate ideas on their, on their truth, the basis of just their rationalness and, um, the actuality of something. Do you love coffee? I love coffee. You can ask my husband. I'm always looking for the perfect cup of coffee. And I'm kind of a coffee snob, if I do say so myself. And that's why I'm so glad that I have discovered Seven Weeks Coffee, because not only is the coffee amazingly good, this is the highest quality you can get, pesticide-free, mold-free, direct trade, which is more ethical than even fair trade, but it's also owned by Christians who are unapologetically pro-life. In fact, 10% of every order that comes in through Seven Weeks Coffee goes out to various pro-life organizations around the country. In fact, to date, they have given away over $300,000 to the pro-life cause. I love that. And so you can drink coffee and save a life. And here's a quote from their founder. He said, with each order placed, you will directly help fund our network of over 750 pro-life organizations across the country. So if you love coffee, this is a no-brainer. This is so great. Go to sevenweekscoffee.com. You can use my code, Elisa, for 10% off. Again, go to sevenweekscoffee. Use my code, Elisa, for 10% off. That's really cool. Well, let's continue in your story. What, you know, when did things kind of shift for you that led you to go all the way into becoming a Christian and receiving the true gospel, I guess you could yeah. say? So over the course of these years doing life together up close and peeking behind the curtain of life and belief for people with a robustly biblical worldview, uh, really provoked my jealousy, I think, mm. a spiritual jealousy that was awakened and wanting to be able to 
connect to God in the way that they did. And so around 2018, um, it was fall and Bible study classes were starting up for a lot of my friends. And this had become kind of a familiar part of the rhythm of life, watching them go into their fall Bible studies. And um, several of my friends were in a Bible study that was going to focus on the Old Testament for um, for that year, um, specifically the book of Genesis. And I had um, been teaching um, in my own church setting a children's Sunday school class that was focused on the Old Testament. And I really wanted to glean as much as I could from the, just the depth of knowledge um, that I could see my friends were tapping into. And they had already shown me and shared with me so many tools that make studying the Bible very accessible that takes the edge and the anxiety off of, you know, how do I dig into this properly and get a sense of the historical context? And that was something that was very much missing from my own personal study in the Bible. So we were standing in the parking lot having a um, parking lot pickup time conversation um, early in the fall of 2018. And I just found myself blurting out um, to my friend standing there, one friend in particular, I just made eye contact with her and asked if I could join her Bible study. And she turned and looked at me with this look of shock and happy delight, <laughs> kind of um, commingled and just said, sure, and you can join my small group. I'll, I'll make sure that that happens logistically. That would be wonderful. And so I started a very focused study um, mm. of the Bible that year. And as I got closer and closer to the character of God going carefully in an organized and structured way through the book of Genesis. Um, and then later, um, the first five books of the Bible really started to open up and reveal to me um, things about God that I just had never seen, things in his character and oh. his nature I'd never considered. And and I think that as a person gets closer to God and is drawn closer to him, his magnitude just, it explodes. It, uh, the vista of God just opens up and that causes something paradoxically to shift hmm. um, in, in the heart, I think, automatically, in a sort of automatic way where we start to see ourselves as smaller and smaller. And the problem of our sin as greater hmm. and greater. So as God hmm. gets bigger um, I think in contrast, like uh, up against the backdrop of God's um, goodness and holiness, my awareness um, of my own sin started to deepen and some of the struggles that started to emerge in my life at the same time just became so, so heavy. Um, I was struggling with mm. depression and anger um, and it these things became such a a kind of captivity for me over the course of a couple of years, I became very, very depressed and hopeless and weary um, and suicidal ideation started to creep into mm. the landscape for me. Um, but as I continued in 2018 and 2019 to study first the Old Testament, and then we moved the next year into a study of um, Acts through Hebrews, which was the first time I had ever done this kind of Bible study before. I'd handled scripture my whole life. I had read the Bible from cover to cover um, at least once, and I had been, you know, was really familiar with the Gospels and, and, and much of the Bible, but um, 
now I would say that that familiarity was very, very superficial. So digging into the full narrative of the Bible and actually seeing that there are, you know, testable uh, truth claims about the Bible itself. Like this is either one unified narrative or it's not. You can study that and determine whether or not that's a true statement uh, about the Bible. This is either one unified narrative that all points to Jesus or it doesn't. And you can test that out. And so these things that people were um, saying to me, things about the Bible, the way that it interacted with their life that I was seeing for other people started to happen to me. And um, I remember a, a day in late 2019 where I um, was uh, towards the end of the study of Acts through Hebrews and um, was really enjoying Hebrews because um, it was a, a part of the text of the Bible that I had literally no understanding or familiarity, familiarity with whatever. And I remember one day um, just focusing, looking down at my um, Bible study in front of me, and all of a sudden, the Trinity mm. just jumped off the pages. And the connections that I had made over the course of a couple of years, seeing God's nature and His reality come out of the text, just gelled. It 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 um, became obvious to me that the Bible was actually presenting a triune God and wow. not the Godhead of my religious upbringing. And at that point, I, I had such a desperate desire and hunger and thirst for truth and for God. In that moment, I, I just said to God, I would rather be right with you about who you say you are mm. and wrong with the millions of people who would disagree with this, um, wow. uh, then, then miss you. Because, you know, if, if, if Jesus had a fraternal twin and you were worshiping that fraternal twin, it's still a counterfeit Jesus. One of the thing I love about all of our sponsors is that not only that they're Christians, but the products are so high quality. And this is one of the reasons that I absolutely love Good Ranchers. I will be a customer of Good Ranchers for life. This is American meat delivered right to your door. And each month we do the Ranchers Classic. So we get various steaks, we get ground beef, and we get chicken breasts. These chicken breasts are better quality than the organic chicken that you're going to buy in the stores. And they come pre-trimmed and individually packaged just to be put in your freezer. So whether you're feeding your family of many, you know, four to six to however many kids you have you're feeding or just yourself, you can pull out one to as many of these chicken breasts as you need. And the steaks are the same way, individually packaged. And I just love knowing that I don't have to stress out about what I'm going to make for dinner. And I also don't have to stress out if I want to invite people over for dinner. I don't have to think through all these complicated recipes. I can just pull out some chicken, some steak and season it simply and serve a great meal and kind of practice my my hospitality that way, which I've been a little bit lacking in in the past, but I'm getting better. The Lord is helping me. But I love Good Ranchers because all of the meat is so high quality. It's better than organic. In fact, the, the beef is all grass uh, pasture raised, no antibiotics, no hormones. Same with the chicken. This is wild caught seafood. And we also have heritage breed pork. They're not kept in crates. 
This is just the highest quality meat you can get, and it's absolutely delicious. I really think you can taste the difference. So I'd love for you to try it for yourself. This is a great month to subscribe to Good Ranchers because Good Ranchers has given my audience an exclusive uh, discount. Now, this is something they offered before, but they they ended that promotion, but they emailed us and they said, look, your audience, we're going to continue to offer that. And that is free chicken for a year. So if you sign up with Good Ranchers in the month of February and use my code ALISA, you're going to get free chicken in every box for the first year of your subscription. And with that code ALISA, you're also going to get a discount off your first box. So it's a great way to give it a try. You can cancel the subscription at any time. You can pause it. You can skip a box or you can cancel it altogether. So if you just want to give it a try, go to GoodRanchers.com. Use my code ALISA for free chicken for a year and a discount off your first order. Again, that's GoodRanchers.com. Use my code ALISA. Mm. Um, you know, if if somebody crept into bed at night next to me that wasn't my husband but was a very close imitation of my husband, it would still be the wrong person and um, that I wouldn't want to have an intimate loving relationship with that person. Yeah. Um, because they're, if they're a stranger, they're a stranger. They're not, they're not the real, the real one. And so in my head, I was having all of these kind of images just flow forward. And um, so from that time forward, I started to sincerely pray to Jesus mm-hmm. and confess my sin to Jesus. And especially um, in a particular part of my struggle. There was a night, it was the middle of the night, and I had had um, a very, very difficult day, probably the worst day of my life to that point. And I just remember looking up to God and saying, I finally see it. I finally see in clarity that the work that I've been putting forward is like running a hamster wheel. Um, and it's running me exhausted. And all that it's producing is a great big giant tower of Babel of filthy rags. Mm. Um, in, in, in your site, that's what it amounts to. I don't know what to do with that because I've done all of this for you, God. I've devoted my life to a way of um, following and imitating and trying to conform myself to the righteousness, the goodness, the kindness of Jesus. I don't know what to do with that. Mm. But whatever, but I, I said to the Lord, Putting all that aside, I just want you to make me right with you. Whatever mm. it takes, take this sin struggle with anger and this the the spiritual death that my life has become. Take it away and do do whatever you have to do, whatever is required to make me right with you. Mm. And I don't have um, I'm not a visionary person. I don't I don't have a lot of experience with visions, um, but. In that moment, a picture flashed um, in my mind like I was watching a movie of my entire life. And what I saw was the entire content of my life walk uh, symbolized as articles, items stacked up on a beautiful white altar Mm. against the background of a clear blue sky. And at the very, very top of the pile of everything that was the content of my life stood um, the outline of, uh, an LDS temple. And I knew that all of this, including my entire life of faith and belief had just 
landed on top of this altar and that I had given it all over to the Lord and it was his to do with what, whatever he um, deemed to do. And that picture, it was all of this took like a split second and it took my breath away. I was like, oh gosh, all of my life really is God's. I'm thinking out loud to, to the Lord and I'm saying to him, this has always been yours and it is absolutely yours to do with whatever you will. But I'm pretty sure that that doesn't mean you're going to take me out of the LDS church. I'm pretty sure that all of this is going to mm. work out. I'm just, I'm going to walk forward as a born-again Mormon. That's what this is. I'm going to create a category for myself. And, <laughs> and, and Lord, you will help me work all of this out. And I'll just, I'll follow you. I'm a born-again Mormon. Um, a couple of months later, um, these issues in my life uh, we're still very much there. And I per continued in this, the, my daily routine, which uh, looked very unorthodox for a lot of LDS folks, but it had become normal to just get up, go to my Bible study. And, and on January 7th of 2020, I was, you can picture a Mormon mom in a minivan rolling out of a Baptist church parking lot, you know, leaving a non-denominational Bible study. And I've got a Tim Keller podcast on repeat. Now, this is not the usual morning routine for right. most um, LDS people, but this had become just the habit and the, the soundtrack of my life. So I was listening to this sermon where the gospel was just unpacked beautifully. And that was where I heard the gospel. And the last piece of the gospel for me that I had not seen clearly was the concept of imputed righteousness, that, that mm. Jesus does everything necessary. Um, he obliterates the entire record of my life's sin, the past, the present, and the future in his perfect life, death, and resurrection. I had never understood the word righteousness as Christians use it. I had always um, had this concept of righteousness when I heard that word. I think a lot of people picture like a very uh, stiff, starched white shirt buttoned up to the top. And it's, you know, righteousness is like this purity mm -hmm. and this perfect um, starched life um, that's buttoned up and right with God. I'd never actually heard such a clear explanation of Jesus's righteousness swapped mm. from my whole record. And so when I heard that explanation, uh, it was like my soul was lifted out of my body and just plunged into a baptism of liberty. Mm. And I heard the voice of God say, you are mine and you can walk away from anyone, any organization, anything that claims to have greater authority over your life than me. And this desire to just a uh, desire erupted in, in my whole person right there. My response to that realization was, yes, I believe that I accept that I receive that. And I just want to go tell everybody about that. Where's the nearest pool of water? I want to get baptized right now and just tell the world. It was like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch meets the woman at the well, like in one radical. So you knew moment. at that point, I am not I knew at that point a born again Mormon. 
that that I was not a born again Mormon. I belonged to Jesus as yeah. a new apprentice of the Jesus that we find in the Bible and the gospel that we only find in the Bible, and that I can have access to the face to face presence of God when I pass on from this life. I I will be in His face to face presence. That there won't mm. be um, anything that stands between uh, me and Him now because of what Jesus did. Um, and, and, and I knew in that moment that it, it did not happen in the context of anything that the, um, the nuances that the, that the restored gospel framework, um, provides or asserts. I knew that it had happened because of the living and active word of God that comes out of the old and new Testament that had pointed me to the, to the real Jesus, um, Praise God. That's I, a that's a beautiful yeah. story. I mean, I just I love I love that story. And I learned so much about even what's going on in the hearts and minds of my Mormon friends and neighbors, you know, as as and I think that's really the the impact that your story has, especially for our viewers who may have neighbors and friends who are in the LDS church and they're they're wanting to know like how do I reach my friends, mm -hmm. and I think your story is such a beautiful example of a, a group of, uh, you know, logical Christians. These are, mm -hmm. these are, mm -hmm. you know, I think sometimes there's so many stereotypes about Christians who are into apologetics and critical thinking. They think, oh, well, it's, you know, it's all head and no heart. But I mean, you can see just the vibrant community of people that reached out to you and, and showed you the real Christian life who were informed um, with critical thinking and logic and apologetics and all of those great things. Um, but one of the, I want to pivot just a little bit because one of the things that you and I talked about when we were together at the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy was that there were, there, I don't know if you want to call it like similar beliefs or overlap maybe between Mormon beliefs and progressive Christian beliefs. And this is something I, that kind of surprised me when, when you brought out some of these things. So I definitely know that my audience would be interested in hearing about some of these. So let's go through just maybe a few different points. Um, the first being the, the Mormon view of sin. So in progressive Christianity, um, many people misunderstand progressive Christianity as being something that doesn't believe in sin. Well, that's not actually true. Progressive Christians believe in sin. And by the way, um, when I'm analyzing progressive Christianity, it's not as organized as LDS. Perhaps, you know, it's more sporadic and there's different leaders that have different views on things. Certainly, I acknowledge that. But if you just, you know, take in the major thought leaders of the progressive Christian movement, generally speaking, they they don't believe that our that we are born with a sin nature, that we are born, um, you know, separated from God. And they certainly wouldn't believe that our sin separates us from God. Um, they're not going to deny that people commit sins or even do great evils and how they work that out might be different based on the thought leader that you're reading or listening to. But the, the sort of unifying idea in progressive Christianity is that we we don't have this kind of um, sin nature that is fallen when we're born. And then and when we sin, that's not what separates us from God. So I wonder if you could speak to the Mormon view of that and how that might um, overlap with the progressive Christian view. Yeah. In the LDS framework, um, all material and creation is eternal and divine. And so we are constructed and organized. Our souls and our bodies have been constructed from um, matter that has uh, divinity in it. And so when we come to uh, the earth, when we're born, the LDS framework would say that we have 
um, a godly nature, that we are born as children of God because we were created by God, that all of humanity has a divine nature and has an inherent ability to sense um, promptings of the Holy Spirit and to and is and that all people are led by the light of Christ um, that um, influences them and that um, we have sinned as a result of Adam and Eve's sin affecting you know humanity and the world globally. Um, but the idea of free will and agency is really um, a core um, part of the, the belief system um, of the restored gospel, that we can choose um, to follow God or not to, that we have a will that actually allows us to make good choices from the outset of life. So yeah. that that's how um, the... Um, I think that the majority of LDS people would um, agree with that. Okay, that's fascinating to hear you say that because I, immediately when you said that the view is that all matter has divinity or, you know, it, however you worded that, that's very similar to Richard Rohr's Universal Christ. I don't know how much you've engaged with that, but mm-hmm. I, I pulled it up on my Kindle as you were talking because it sounds so much like what you were saying. Um, yeah. Rohr says, yeah. the infinite primal source somehow poured itself into finite visible forms, creating everything from rocks to water, plants, organisms, and animals and human beings, everything we see with our eyes. This self-disclosure of whomever you call God into physical creation was the first incarnation, the general term for any enfleshment of spirit, long before the personal second incarnation that Christians believe happened with Jesus. And so um, he even says further down in this page, everything visible without exception is the outpouring of God. And so um, he talks about this incarnational type of worldview uh, that is basically panentheism. and. Mm -hmm. And so that that sounds very similar. Like there's there's some similarities there. And yeah. and honestly, it's it's interesting to me too how much progressive Christianity has in common with lots of different other belief systems and even ancient mm-hmm. heresies and things like this. Because yeah. really, anytime you progress beyond the gospel that was given by Jesus, mm-hmm. you are gonna be in progressive land, no matter if it mm-hmm. has a different label or or what mm-hmm. you might call it. Mm-hmm. Um, any thoughts on that? I mean, do you think I'm far off by making that connection with Roar? Or no, I think that that's um, something that would really connect with Latter Day Saints. I think mm. a lot of, or that Latter Day Saints would I would connect with with that um, because it does the restored gospel presents such a a warm um, and positive view of our humanity and our connection to the Creator and all things in creation. Um, there's a particular hymn that I'm, um, I'm thinking of, um, that's in the LDS hymn book that, that speaks about, um, the, er, the eternality of matter. And so wow. as, you know, we dive into those specific statements by Richard were, um, I, I think that there is this common thread. Uh, there are a lot of, um, counterfeits of the biblical gospel that share these common threads, I think, mm-hmm. through history. So your comment that, you know, we see these things in in ancient heresies, you know, traveling forward and, and looking slightly different, but uh, there are a lot of, you know, old stories new 
um, old ideas new that that yeah. come back and take slightly di- take on different packaging. But I think that it's really appealing to um, our humanity, you know, to have that warm pat on the back that really we do have the potential to progress eternally. We we I think our flesh craves that um, sense of empowerment that yeah. progressive Christianity um, offers. Yeah. Um, there's this, you know, soft <laughs> pride that is just like, oh, let's just pat that and like keep mm. that growing. Um, that it, it, you know, it, it captures our attention and captures our our arrogance. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, that's good. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the atonement because in progressive Christianity. Uh, There's lots of different—of course, you know, there are different um, approaches to talking about the atonement, legitimate ones that you—in fact, I tell people I hate the phrase atonement theories because it almost Mm -hmm. suggests you have to pick one. And Mm -hmm. I think that as Christians, we should embrace and believe every metaphor and way of talking about the atonement that the Bible presents to us. We we should, you know— Yes, Jesus died and rose to defeat the power of sin and death. Yes, he died as a substitutionary sacrifice. Yes, he's a moral example to follow. Yes, all these things that, the, you know, every single way that the Bible talks about it, we should embrace and and believe. But in progressive Christianity, very often they'll reject some of the ways the Bible talks about it. And in particular, I would say the most um, broad rejection when it comes to the atonement is the idea that Jesus' death was a substitutionary sacrifice, that that there was um, a substitution that happened, that he got what we deserved, that he took the punishment of our sins upon himself. And of course, then now we're getting into the realm of what we would call penal substitutionary atonement. So in mm-hmm. progressive Christianity, that that is just not—that's barbaric. That's, that's what um, pagans believe. That's not something that, you know, is something that God— wanted to happen as far as, or or in even in a cosmic reality, that's not what happened. It's not that Jesus died to take our sins upon himself. So in the mind of the progressive Christian, the atonement becomes more um, like Jesus showing us what forgiveness looks like. You know, when he says, Father, mm-hmm. forgive them for they know not what they do. Um, we look to that to know that that's how we should behave and that's how we should try to reconcile ourselves to other people. So that would be about the extent of the atonement for um, a progressive. And they might embrace some form of Christus Victor, which is the idea that Jesus died and rose to defeat the power of sin and death. But in my view, if if he died and rose to defeat the power of sin and death but can't do anything about my personal sin, you know, to cleanse me from my personal sin, then that does me no good. So, um but I'm curious about in Mormonism what the view of the atonement would be. Um, so I think that the way I would capture the LDS view of the atonement now um, is that it's it's been moved geographically from the mm. cross to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I think mm. that, you know, um, if, if I were— if I were the enemy of God and I wanted to present a compelling counterfeit to uh, the real gospel message, um, the events of that story and the necessary components, I think that I would actually try to keep them as close to the reality as possible. And so, well, what what I am starting to understand about progressive Christianity actually presents a, a clearer contrast between 
um, the gospel as we see it in the Bible and these elements of sin and um, substitutionary atonement. In the LDS um, imagination, in the LDS restored gospel framework, um, the atonement is it's at the center, but it's been shifted to the Garden of Gethsemane. So we take the cross, and while it's important and a necessary part of Jesus' sacrifice, he had to die um, this death for us and on our behalf. Um, the LDS view is that his suffering for sin was fully completed, um, or or that by and large, it was um, completed in the Garden of hmm. Gethsemane. So in in essence, the LDS view of the atonement is very similar. It's like an identical twin. The, the differences might be nuanced um, at a first glance. You have to, um, I think, explore the teaching um, to some extent to really see how um, the cross is subtly diminished. Hmm. and um, not obscured from view, but made slightly secondary to um, suffering in the Garden of of Gethsemane. And so everything surrounding that is slightly shifted. Mm -hmm. So the question then becomes for an LDS person, is this substantive? Is this meaningful? Have I stepped foot into another gospel by taking um, what the Bible addresses on the cross and moving it mm-hmm. um, and disconnecting it from um, what we see played out in the Bible and described very clearly in the Bible. If we take that and um, and move it geographically, what else have we done mm. with the message and with the yeah. substance of that thing? Um, you know, it's fascinating to me with so many so many movements and whatever it might be throughout church history is it, there seem to be the same kind of things that people want to move away from. And that's like, you know, the the view of sin, mm-hmm. taking a clear look at the cross. Mm-hmm. And another one would be hell. So, you know, in progressive Christianity, what's really interesting about the view of hell in progressive Christianity is it's very fluid. A lot of progressive thought leaders, you'll read their books and at the end of the book, they'll say, well, I haven't really thought that much about, you know, what I think about heaven and hell. I'm going to look into that next. And then the ones who have are going to be largely universalist in some way, whether they call themselves, um, as Nadia Boltz-Weber does, a Christocentric universalist, uh, universalist or like um, the author of The of the Shack calls himself, uh, what does he call it, um, uh, universal reconciliation, where they they might believe that Jesus has done it, but he's done it for everybody, so everybody's saved, and it ends up with a rejection of a literal place of punishment called hell. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of how I try to flesh it out for people. As you ask 10 progressive Christians what their view of hell is, you're going to get 10 different answers because some might say, well, it's just the um, you know reaping of the consequences of our negative actions while we're here on earth. And others might take it even further into the afterlife. But ultimately, they're going to say, no, a good God would not punish someone in a place, uh, you know, called hell. And so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious what the, what the Mormon view of that is. So Elisa, all of that, um, that you just described would map directly on to, wow. um, the majority of, um, um, views that are held about hell, um, and the magnitude of hell, um, within the restored gospel framework. Um, 
to describe it in very concrete language, um, the afterlife and judgment uh, looks looks like this in the in the restored gospel um, picture of things that when we die, we will be judged and assigned to one of um, four places. Um, heaven has a kind of a three-tiered design that there is a lower kingdom of heaven, a middle kingdom, and then a higher kingdom. And that highest kingdom is where you would have access to the face-to-face presence of God. Um, And hell can be described in two different ways um, for the LDS person. There is a specific place called outer darkness where very few people will find themselves after judgment. Um, That place is reserved for individuals who have received in this life and accepted the entire set of ordinances and made covenants um, from baptism all the way to the um, set of ordinances available in the LDS temple. Um, And then after receiving all of that light and making um, covenantal vows in the temple to consecrate your entire life to building up the kingdom of God and the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and then turn away from that, reject it fully. Um, so to, you, that's you, right? That, that, that would be a person like me. Although, that, that had to be heavy to process that at free. I'm um, just, you know, I had an experience of a loved one very, very close to me when I was in high school. Someone very, very important in my life um, left the LDS church, and it literally felt like um, an arm had been cut off. Mm. They were still living, but in a way, dead. Mm. Uh, Like Seeing them and being around them was this constant reminder um, that they had shattered our eternal relationship, that they had the power to determine whether or not I would be connected to them in the next life, that their power to do that was greater than God. It was greater than my own power. Um, I couldn't stop that person from taking their name off of the membership registry, resigning their membership from the LDS church. And they made a a clear and, um, fully informed decision to do that. And so I had experienced this um, as a young adult, as a teenager. Um, and so when um, when I made the decision to make a, um, a full and clean cut from my um, participation and membership in the LDS church, all of those memories um, were very fresh um, in mm. my mind. I knew that uh, what I what I had been led to was um, going to be have like eternally yeah. uh, devastating impact. And so yeah. um, it, it is a, it is a really, really significant thing to, for an LDS person to walk away like I did and to reject that. Um, there 
is a lot of discussion today, though, about the grace of God. And perhaps um, someone might say to me, well, Lucy, maybe you just didn't really understand everything. And so you didn't make a fully informed choice. Maybe you'll um, maybe you'll find yourself in one of the lower degrees of glory, which would be hell-like in a way because you are cut off from um, what the LDS worldview says is the point of eternity, which is eternal progression towards mm-hmm. Godhood. And so I will only be able to progress to a point and I'll know what I'm missing out on. And in a sense, that is being damned. That's being halted in my progression and cut off from the full measure of God's blessing and gift. And so there is this idea that these lower tiers of heaven um, are um, the LDS hell. But again, you can see how that presentation of a plan of salvation differs from the one that we um, discover in the Bible. And so again, the question becomes, is this a watering down? Mm-hmm. Is this shift, mater- is it a material and substantive shift? These are the questions that um, people would have to grapple with when confronted you know, with these yeah. things. And again, when I was saved, so much of these things crystallized in a very mm-hmm. rapid succession in that moment where um, things that I had been exposed to in the Bible that had contradicted um, things in the restored gospel became very clear, very clear. And I understood um, in a, in a very short moment that the con the contrast was meaningful to God, mm-hmm. that these things did matter to him, whether they mattered to me or not was totally secondary or tertiary, but that these mm-hmm. things were absolutely um, crucial, fundamental yeah. for, for God. And so that my response was, yes, I, I, I understand that. I see it now that it is crucial. Yeah. Um, and I, and I want to align my, my, my walk with the truth, even if it means, um, devastating my family members for a time in this, mm-hmm. in the circumstances that we're going to have to navigate now. Yeah. Well, Lucy, we are about out of time, um, but I want to ask you just, I know that the question that's burning on a lot of hearts and minds right now, especially for those of us who have Mormon friends and loved ones, what is the best way to reach out to our Mormon friends and neighbors um, with the gospel of Jesus? Um, I think that the strongest opportunity that we have is to do this in a context of relationship. No one ever in the in the several years uh, that I was walking toward Jesus, or that He was actually like pulling me out of what I thought was the true lifeboat of belief and pulling me, um, catapulting me eventually into the water um, to be with Him. Um, what, all of this was experience in a context of relationship. I never had an experience, um, except for maybe once where I was confronted, um, in a direct way with, um, something that you might compare to like a street tract Mm -hmm. approach, um, uh, approach to explaining or teaching or preaching the gospel to me. Um, I would say that the most powerful thing and in, in the context of the culture of the LDS church today, one of the most powerful things that um, Christians can do is um, to develop a solid understanding of how to handle the scripture or to find resources that you can point people to. Um, Some of my friends didn't have the 
you know, they weren't Bible scholars, any of them. And so they would often point me to um, very accessible resources about how to handle scripture, how to study, how not to study the Bible, books, podcasts, blogs, um, or just to sit down and um, talk about how they saw Jesus show up in their life and then discuss um, that in just in conversation. I I think that there's something very powerful about um, the ability that Christians have to see Jesus everywhere and then just to tell somebody about it. I was always treated like I was, again, one of them. I I would say that the way I describe the way that um, people interacted with me might be comparable to the way you would interact with a new believer. No one ever addressed me as if I was on the outside. And Mm. um, so when people prayed with me and for me, they invited me to pray with them. There was never this sense of distance between the God I was praying to and the, the Jesus of the Bible. Um, it, it was, I, I would say that in a lot of instances, it was just, it, it wasn't an issue. And so they were demonstrating for me their hermeneutic and the way that that uh, came out into the way that they um, addressed issues in their lives um, and handled different situations in parenting or marriage or or family or health or, you know, um, business, whatever. The other thing that I think is, um, again, just useful to circle back to is the, uh, uh, the apologetic foundation, um, that Christians have access to, to, to really think about, um, if you haven't, um, crafted a one or two minute version of your testimony and to actually ask your own your, yourself these questions like what is it that i really believe was this the, the saving elements of of this transformation that i experienced either in a short period of time or maybe drawn out over a longer set of um, experiences in your in your life um, where did you hear the gospel what is the gospel making sure that first of all we have a check of our own um, relationship with God and then can frame that story in a couple of minutes um, to share with people yeah great well and Lucy where can people connect with you online um, I'm actually launching uh, a podcast uh, here in in January, and Yay. people can uh, find that um, on the website that will be located at www.moregoodministry.com and uh, the Biblecast, uh, the More Good Biblecast. The More Good um, Biblecast. More Good Biblecast. Yeah, it'll be up on all the the platforms shortly. Very good. Very good. Well, I want to thank my guest, Lucy Clark. Um, Great discussion today. And I also want to thank Southern Evangelical Seminary for sponsoring the podcast. You can go to ses.edu slash Elisa to find out more. If you want bonus episodes, I haven't talked about this in a while, but we have a Patreon group. You can go to patreon.com slash Elisa Childers, and you can select a tier, and there's different benefits for different tiers. But one of the benefits is that you get to continue the conversation with our guests with a little five to 10 minute bonus segment, which where you get to choose the questions that we ask them. So go to, again, patreon.com slash Alisa Childers. And let's remember as we pursue Christ to keep a sharp mind, a soft heart, and a thick skin. We'll see you next time. So pray for me and I will pray
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.